Hi, I'm Jenna. And I'm Mark. And you're listening to Cincinnati Zoo Tales. Hey everybody, welcome back to Cincinnati Zoo Tales. Yeah guys, thanks for joining us on another show today. We're really excited. We've got Dr. Lily Maynard here with us today. She's the Director of Global Conservation here at the Cincinnati Zoo. Welcome to the show, Lily. We're happy to have you. Thank you. I'm so excited to be here. We're so excited to have you here. Yes. I wish everyone could meet Lily. She's like the nicest, most amazing, making a difference person that we have here at the zoo and that I know. So thank you for being here. Wow. I would say the same right, same thing right back oh at you, Jenna. No, like I said, thank she's you. really nice. <laughs> <laughs> if you don't leave today's show inspired, something's wrong with you, honestly. Yeah, so I don't know. You guys are setting the bar high. I love it. <laughs> Thanks for having me. I've been loving listening to the podcast and really excited to have joined the zoo team recently yes. to get involved at this amazing zoo. Thanks. We're happy to have you. I, I would like to just get something out of the way at the yes. get-go. So we, we've got to sure do it. Anyone from Cincinnati area, if you're a member here at the zoo, I'm sure you heard us introduce her as Lily Maynard. She oh, is, yeah. in fact, Thane's daughter. I want to get that out of the way. This episode <laughs> is about Lily. She's fantastic. She does great work, but we do have to say it. Thane's daughter, what's it like growing up with a famous dad? I mean, you can imagine, it's a lot of fun, and I can't help it, I had to want to work here, because I grew up (laughs) at the zoo, I grew up with wildlife in my life, and up close with animals, and uh, it got in my blood. I have two other sisters, and one of them's a biologist, and one of them's much more creative, but for me, the the zoo world, the conservation world, and wildlife really got under my skin, and just, obviously, that's what I wanted to do. I wanted to explore, and wanted to... Uh, be a part of conserving our amazing planet because I got to grow up here and got to play with animals and there used to be a lot less rules. So. <laughs> <laughs> I think you've seen some crazy things and gotten to do really awesome things at the zoo just in general because yeah, yes. the rules have changed a the little rule, bit. There's a lot more rules. For um, the better. Obviously, much more for the better, but you know, when I was little and I would wake up and there was a penguin in the kitchen when I got home <laughs> oh on a Saturday morning. Um, you know, that's a magical day and I, he would bring a kinkajou home while we were all eating dinner. I would feed the kinkajou oh grapes and just no have way. these moments sitting at the dining room table having and just really amazing. So I, <laughs> I was going to ask about your sisters because, you know, I wonder if my son will end up grow, growing up and liking animals too. Mm-hmm. Like, so sort of two out of three went... Two, two out of three went full on science, okay. conservation-y related. One does more medical research okay. and she very much is um, more detail-oriented and lab work. She's amazing and brilliant. My other sister definitely still loves wildlife and appreciates it in her recreation. We still all look at birds out together okay. and I'll still go hiking and things. But for her passion and careers, yeah, the, I think the teenage years was clear she wanted to divert and okay. do, do other things. I was interested, <laughs> yeah, if, if you all loved animals or if it really is like a individual thing or how you grow up. Or... Yeah, there's the nature and nurture argument, right? Yeah, and so there's, definitely. we all still appreciate, but we all okay. also have different different career interests. And it's, that's what makes it fun. Yeah, I feel, I feel But like I feel like I'm the luckiest. I get to work at the zoo. Right? And well, of course I want to work <laughs> yeah. here. So yeah, yeah, I feel like very lucky to be able to say, yeah, Thane Maynard's my dad, and I've gotten to have a lot of fun learning from him, and also getting to join this amazing team that here at the zoo is really an exceptional number of passionate experts doing really cool work. So thrilled I got to join the team. Yeah, we're so excited to have you here. We are just now, you know, kind of getting to know your new role because Mm -hmm. it is a new position, but how did you get to that? And we'll talk about your role that you currently have here at the Cincinnati Zoo, but I mean, you've done a lot in your life and, you know, Tell us how you got here, Yeah, basically. what are the steps between having a penguin in your kitchen <laughs> to where you got to now? Coming to there's, a lot of, there's a lot of steps in between, but if I was to summarize, I um, grew up here in Cincinnati, obviously, and then um, went to Smith College and studied biology uh, for my undergrad and animal behavior. really wanted to study the ecology and how we can study carnivore behavior. I really thought I was going to be a big cat carnivore conservationist and uh, got to was definitely inspired by Catherine Hilker and the cheetahs here and just being able to see how exceptional these animals are and thinking their behavior is really interesting. And so then I moved to Kenya when I finished undergrad and I lived there for a couple of years off and on living and working with the Maasai people in southern Kenya at an organization called Soralo, S-O-R-A-L-O, Soralo, which is a 
acronym for the South Rift Association of Landowners. And that means it's a amalgamation of communities that all are sharing their land as a, communally and making decisions about the landscape as a group. It's very different than the structure of landholding here where every person might own a property or rent a property yeah. and then that's per family or something. It's a communal landscape where they make choices about their where the people are, where their livestock are, but also make decisions about where to leave resources for wildlife. And so I was so lucky. I got a, a, an opportunity to move there. Okay, and I have learn. to ask about that. Like, yeah. <laughs> did you go there for an internship and never left? Did you like? Yes, did you plan exactly. to live there for years? How does like? How do you get brave enough to just a move, big move there? Yeah. Cool. Well, I went and visited. Luckily, at my I was able to go on a safari trip with my dad and um, some students that he was taking on a on a trip through the program Project Dragonfly through Miami University. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And that really put the idea in my head of this place is amazing. I want to come back. Yeah. And then I did get an internship that then led to me not leaving and finding more and more projects <laughs> okay. to get involved in and stick around because it's a really amazing place that. The people are making the Maasai people are making active decisions every day about how to have space for wildlife and their own needs, and so I really ha- I had a degree in biology or whatever, but I was mostly and just entirely there to learn from them. To mm-hmm. they are the experts on what is it to live and coexist with big animals, things that we can't even comprehend. Right. Can you imagine a three four hundred pound predator walking through your backyard? No, it's crazy. And so it was my job to track the lion prides at night. There were several different prides of lions that we were monitoring. This is not a national park. There's no fences, and it's not set-aside land separate from people. There are lots of people, maybe 10,000 people in one of these communities, thousands of livestock, and over 100 lions maybe in some some of these landscapes. So it was my job to track lions at night because they only really moved around at night and then talk with people during the day about where the lions are bedding down and hiding in the bushes so that they could prevent conflict and take their livestock elsewhere in the landscape. Yeah, no pressure for you. Just track these lion prides, these dangerous animals at night. (laughs) (laughs) Well, I was in a vehicle, just to be explicitly clear, I wasn't on foot, and it was an amazing dream job, you know? I've I've learned how not to sleep, and I really learned I love sleep, (laughs) Sleep's important, but it's worth it when there's lions involved. And not only lions, if this is a vivacious landscape with so much wildlife that I would see... Elephants, oh leopards, gosh. cheetah, bad-eared foxes, aardwolves, striped hyena, things that just wow. are really uh, magical. And so that's what energized me to get up. And, and I, I lived in a tent. And I was going to ask about that. Like, yeah. you know, yeah. how hard was it? Sometimes you can go on a safari and it's you have better treatment than yes. and like, a living situation than you do here yes. but then I know you can also have a different situation yeah I lived in a little tent by myself okay. on a, in a research camp with a lot of Maasai people my co-workers and researchers that I got to learn from and it was fun I wasn't ever afraid of wildlife coming in my okay. tent or anything a couple times a toad came in <laughs> and I always wondered if the toads can get in well how, how where are the cobras <laughs> oh, but they always stayed outside I, I did see them a few times outside the tent you know but got to keep you on your toes so got very fixated on staring at the ground to make sure you're not about to step on the cobra or scorpion. Yeah. but also to look at the ground and learn how to track I had oh to first gosh. learn how to track there because we would drive around until we found lion prints and then we had to follow them until they led us to the lions <laughs> and it was just amazing to get to know the landscape to that level of detail. So yeah. none of these cats were radio collared. At that point none were from, when from I first started time. but about nine months into my time there we did collar uh, an individual per pride so okay. um, over my time working there we collared seven different lions in different prides in order to be able to understand where are they with a GPS point but and that made life a lot easier to be able to find them. But it, it also is hard if the groups are dynamic. They're not as solid as a family group that we like to tell ourselves, and they sometimes might split depending on resources or depending on the the mood or personality of yeah. the cats. And so, if being able to 
really explore the landscape and find them was so much fun and mind-blowing. And a big turning point for me because I thought I was going to be a carnivore biologist or, you know, a conservationist. But when I realized my taking data, writing down what the lions were doing and where, what, where they were putting their cubs, where they were getting water, I started to realize this is the same watering hole that people come to with their goats and sheep. And to collect water for their family. Yeah. And my writing down what the lions are doing isn't conservation. The lions just want to be lions. And they will be whether I'm here or not. The conservationists are the people who are making choices and giving the lions space to be there. And so that was a turning point for me where I then came back to the U.S. to get my master's and then my Ph.D. in the human dimensions of conservation at the University of Florida, where I studied and learned the sociology and the psychology side of how that complements conservation, about how we can encourage people to be a part of it, how we can learn from the communities and the indigenous voices who have been living with wildlife and have cultural traditions that reinforce a sustainable landscape rather than imposing an idea from a different country onto a landscape. And so that is what led me to uh, getting my PhD and thinking about how can zoos play a role in advancing conservation, and that's what I explored for my PhD, and what's the pattern of conservation impact across zoos and aquariums, across the AZA, the Association of Zoos and Aquariums, And then I worked at Disney's Animal Kingdom for a few years, leading a variety of projects from monarch butterfly work to tamarind projects in Colombia and Brazil and lion projects with the Lion King film in 2019. (gasps) I got to be a part of the Protect the Pride campaign team there and just learned so much about the importance of holding up great organizations around the world and tying everyone together to promote collaboration. And so that's what led me here to this new role that's new at the zoo around how can the Cincinnati Zoo play a vital role in helping to facilitate conservation in helping to reinforce the needs of our partners, whether they're in Kenya, in India, or here in the greater Cincinnati area and hold them up with resources, with support, with lots of expert and passionate people that work here at the zoo. That's my goal. How do we get everybody here more actively involved in conservation? And then by extension, beyond our staff and our volunteers, we have a lot of staff and volunteers that need to get involved first. But then, how do we get all of our visitors, the people who walk around this park, and also who follow Fiona online, (laughs) you know? Everybody can do something for conservation, and so that's my goal and really my excitement for being here about really we can take the inspiration and learn from our partners around the world and also apply it in what we do every day. Amazing. Yeah. (laughs) I mean, I think it's amazing that you, you care so much that you're willing to, you know, go on to extra schooling and work even more on the people side, which a lot of the times, a lot of us care so much about animals, but we're not willing to put in the work to learn about how we can help the people help yeah. the animals or the world or, you know. I, I, I wouldn't have predicted it for myself, but it uh, it's the right path for me because it really helps me to feel more directly connected to the impact I'm looking for. Yeah. I like to say that conservation is an active verb. And the only species on the planet that can do conservation is people. I love that. Yeah. Wildlife just wants to be wildlife. They need to have the resources, the habitat, the food, the space that they need. But conservation depends on people standing up and taking action. And so I love talking to people. I have done been an educator here at the zoo in the past and elsewhere, and I love f- trying to find ways to reach different types of people to invite people to take part in whatever interests them. So it's fun. And then what the real benefit is, is I get to talk about all sorts of different wildlife because I can try to say, hey, Mark, what's your favorite animal? And then we can tie in some conservation with that. Or obviously we'll talk about hippos for days or whatever whatever you want. (laughs) No, I think that's amazing because, yeah, that's what I, you know, was my goal of this podcast was to give people the opportunity to be a conservationist at home themselves. Everyone, like you said, can do it. But, oh my gosh, what you do is just, like, so beyond grand and making such a big difference and actually, you know. thank you. I I think it's amazing. I appreciate your kind support and encouragement, but I also want to say 
I am just a facilitator. I am the person who I feel very lucky I get to reach out to different organizations that I, and be a partner with them. But it's not as glamorous as it might sound. <laughs> I spend a lot of time at my computer, like most people, writing yeah. emails and on Zoom calls. But in that, asking people and treating organizations just like another person to ask, what do you need? And it might not even be related to conservation, that, that need. But if we can help meet that need and then bring some conservation along the way mm -hmm. as part of the partnership, as part of ways to advance community growth and development and promote some of the wildlife needs along the way, then it's a win-win or yeah. um, as many wins as possible yeah. you can throw in the pot. That's what makes me really psyched because then we can get everybody involved. Yeah, conservation is definitely about building a relationship and mm -hmm. collaborating. Mm -hmm. Yeah, agreed. But I do agree with what Jenna said, though. It's very selfless and forward-thinking of you. As someone who works on the animal side, I cannot imagine saying, hey, I'm going from tracking lions to being in meetings and in right. Zoom calls. That sounds brutal, so I respect it. Because you well, can have now a when you say it like that, I'm like, sorry, I'm, I gotta go. I'm gonna go get on a plane. I'm going back to Kenya. I hope you get to go often enough that it, like, you know, I'm sure you seem very happy to be in this position, but I'm like, I hope it fills your heart. You yes, still get to I go so see too. the lions. Or, it it, it yeah. does, and but I do want to travel with COVID. I do miss traveling. Yeah, there's nothing and better than Africa. Exactly. Oh my gosh. So I do hope uh, that part of this role will be that I get to go back, but not just myself, that more and more of our staff here at the zoo and interested visitors, audience members who want to join us. It's an it's a place worth going on a very long plane rides. Really, it's a several yes. long plane yes. rides, but <laughs> it's worth it because it is more magical than you can even describe yes. to stand in a place and see not only lions or elephants or, or different wildlife, but to also know that people are thriving here. And it's possible yeah. to have such a living landscape. Yeah. And so I really want to encourage folks to think about uh, how to get connected with that. And the, the first place you can do that is here at the zoo, because I've never seen a better place where you can really see wildlife up close and also see real photos and real stories of people in Kenya, like we have on the yeah. signs here mm -hmm. throughout our Africa habitat to be able to see how the Maasai people in this same landscape are living with wildlife. Yeah. It's, it's also very cool for you to get two perspectives, you know, here in the U.S., like you had mentioned, habitat decline, habitat fragmentation, that's obviously some of the biggest threats mm -hmm. facing wildlife across the world. Mm -hmm. Here it's a very different style of conservation that you're going to have to deploy because you've got land ownership is very split, mm -hmm. it's very, very defined, whereas mm -hmm. over there it's this community land ownership mm -hmm. program. Mm -hmm. The answers for us that work in the U.S. for conservation aren't going to work in Kenya mm -hmm. or in Tanzania, wherever you may be. Yeah. So it's really cool for you to be able to get two perspectives and see how you have to answer these, answer these, I guess, problems with yeah. Different solutions, yeah. Yeah, that's a very good way of putting it because we do have to be adaptable depending on the mm. conditions of the landscape and the conditions of the what the threats are to the wildlife or, or the, pr the pressures there. Fencing is a very simple example of when, when there is fencing and wildlife need to be able to move through it. How are you engaging individual landowners to create some space or allow uh, enough space for antelope or deer, no matter what it is, yeah. to get through or under or over to be able to move through? Uh, it's We have to be creative. And I think the foundation to that is, is relationships, is willingly trying to develop relationships with people in your community so that you can have conversations about what are their needs? What are what's uh, what stresses are they having, or what pressures are they feeling on their landscape, for example? But also willingness then to listen to you when you're trying to uh, defend and advocate for the wildlife on the landscape as well. So those relationships really help. That's such a good point. Yeah. Yes, they can go so far in so many ways <laughs> in their lives. Trust, and building trust. I think yes. that's something that we sometimes lose when we get more and more isolated and individualistic. So yeah. I think I, I'm hopeful that we can continue to learn from amazing partners like the ones who were so um, impactful for me in Kenya. But we have other amazing examples of, of projects around the world that I'm starting to get to know in this new role, and I'm loving it so much. I was going to say, what are you starting on now? So you're 
now here back in Cincinnati at the zoo with us. What is what are the things you're working on first, or how do you even start this? Where do you begin? It is a lot, and it's really been a lot of fun. I've been in the role for a few months, and it's been a lot of meetings, Mark. Yeah. <laughs> Sorry, <Respect>. but, <laughs> talking about fun things oh, or inspiring talking things. Talking so about the most fun things because we are really taking a lot of deep dives into what does conservation mean to everybody here at the zoo? We're starting internally at the zoo and really reflecting on what is every team doing? Because to date, up until now, the Cincinnati Zoo has been doing a ton for conservation and has been supporting partners by support, sending funds and providing philanthropic support when they can, but also having partnerships with key keepers or staff members in all sorts of different regions of the world for all sorts of species, you name it, we have uh, some connection to a variety of conservation projects. It's my job to try to pull it all together and connect the dots. Okay. And so that's been my daunting and really fun challenge for the summer is to have conversations with everybody throughout this amazing zoo about what are you doing for conservation or how do you identify as being involved in conservation so that then we can create a cohesive plan not to direct and force people to change their projects, but to be able to celebrate the extent to which we are doing a ton for conservation yeah. as an organization, and then as a group be able to set some goalposts in the distance and be able to say we're going to now collectively all run towards an even greater impact now that we know what everybody else is doing and be able to celebrate that, to invite more of our audiences to join us and be able to then document the, the impact we're achieving. Because I think to date the zoo has done a lot, but without taking the time to document it, we can't necessarily uh, really have the, as big of an impact to celebrate the, the, uh, as concrete of a story to tell. And we want to be able to share the great work that's happening here and the species that we're helping to save, the landscapes we're helping to restore. It's so incredible and so I'm trying to tie it all together in order to so that we can kind of scale up and see what is the opportunity for growth. That's, yes it's a good point you make because a lot of people probably don't know all of the little projects or shouldn't say little but behind the scenes projects that are going on mm -hmm. and the amount of money that zoos and especially the Cincinnati Zoo does donate and try and help in partnerships like with Sorallo and, and different organizations and there's just so much of that going on and celebrating it is amazing and inspires others to help us continue that work. And I think it'll be awesome if you are kind of bringing it to all to light. And yes. yeah, there are things happening across the zoo in a different department where I'm here working every day that I don't know what those people yeah. are doing to help. And that shouldn't be the case. Right. You know, we should, I'm not trying to say we all need to be in a lot more meetings. <laughs> keep, keep looking at you, Mark. Don't worry. <laughs> But, I appreciate it. I appreciate it. <laughs> but, you know, I think being able to hold each other up and know, wow, what is every department doing and where where do they also overlap and thus we can also collaborate. We can be more efficient. We can support each other and celebrate yes. more often how awesome the amount of work that's happening here is and how much we're having an impact for wildlife. Awesome. Yeah, we've talked about a lot of those project that the zoo is partnering with on past podcasts, whether it's the manatee program, we talked about McCall's and the bird show program. Um, is there a specific project that you've taken a keen interest in or a favorite that you have so far that the zoo partners with? Not a favorite. I, you know, everybody hesitates with the word favorite because then sure. they will, I'll overthink it and think sure. of every other one that I wish I said. <laughs> but the one that has captured my attention lately and that I'm so excited about getting to know our partners uh, is our Asian elephant work and because that's a new landscape for me but also new partner organizations that are doing exceptional work in a challenging landscape yeah. but it also really touches on similar themes of what I'm comfortable with or familiar with from my time working in Africa. So I've been getting to know our partners at Asian Nature Conservation Foundation, ANCF. Everybody has an acronym, so. <laughs> right. It's a lot to remember. <laughs> exactly. Um, but I've been getting to know them because we're, since we're building Elephant Trek here, and we're so committed to creating an exceptional habitat and landscape for our herds here, we're also wanting to play an active role 
with partners helping the elephants, Asian elephants in the wild. And so we've zeroed in on where's the biggest population left of this endangered species, and that's in India. And then even further, zeroing in on where is the biggest population of Asian elephants in the country of India, and that's in the state of Assam, so northeast India. There are 30,000 elephants. It's the biggest, wow. that's a big population compared to the pockets of populations in some other countries across their range. And so working with the, this organization that works on the ground there, we're able to ask them, what are the major threats to this stronghold population that needs to be protected? And what are they doing to keep that population so high is my exactly. question. Are they doing well, something different? There are some exceptional national parks okay. and some exceptional resources. There is, this is just to the south of the Himalayas. So if you can think about the Himalayas, the water flowing off of that provides a lot of resources, mm -hmm. creates very lush landscapes. It, this is north of Bangladesh, so okay. if you can kind of think um, between the mountains and, the, and then the swamps of Bangladesh, there's these rivers flowing. And these huge grassy forest landscapes are full of wildlife. And so one of those national parks is Kaziranga National Park, where lots and lots of elephants live and also lots of rhinos, Indian rhinos, which is amazing. Awesome. Yeah. And another very rare species that we're passionate about. So win-win. Yeah. How can we help play a role in this landscape where two of our target very important species are? And it's an amazing landscape because half the year it's full of wildlife and then half the year the monsoons come, the rivers flood, and then the entire national park floods. Wow. Ooh, that means the wildlife needs to move. Yeah. And so they walk outside the bounds of the park. And so these the surrounding the park, it's full of people, right? We're talking farmlands, tea estates, so the tea farms where they grow those bushes of tea leaves that are so delicious. <laughs> um, and the, the elephants come. The elephants walk through those landscapes. And so our partners are working on a project to gear up to put some collars, just like I collared lions. They're going to put some collars on elephants to be able to help us understand how the elephants move through the landscape when they go outside of the park and how they move through these habited areas whether there are specific corridors that already exist of forested patches that are connected that we really want to ensure to, that stay protected and don't get cut down because they play an important role for the elephants. That might be an outcome. But also, are there certain areas that could be a hot spot of overlap between elephants and people? The good news is, is elephants and people don't want to get into conflict with each other. But accidents happen, mm -hmm. right? When someone might bump into each other at night or it's in the dark or you're on the road and an elephant gets scared, a person gets scared, or a group of people get scared. Mm -hmm. And that's when conflict happens. And that can be quite dangerous. Yeah. And so working in the landscape and talking to people throughout these communities and on these tea estates and in these villages asking, where are you potentially getting into conflict and how can we help? Maybe they need more solar lights in certain areas to be able to illuminate the roads around where they live so that if an elephant's walking by, they can see it and, and stay back. Um, it's amazing. Elephants are huge, but if they want to be quiet, they yeah. can really, yeah. really be quiet. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> and then, then you'll only see them when you actually really bump into one uh -huh. almost, right? And so being able to prevent that conflict and support the community so that it, we can continue to have positive interactions with the elephants and then allow for a space where people and the elephants can continue to thrive. Oh, I'm really excited for that. Yeah, that's, that's awesome. amazing. Yeah. yeah, we're excited for Elephant Trek as well here yeah, at the exactly. Zuda. Yeah. But the fact that you're tying it all together and making a difference in the wild too, and you can bring that story back to hopefully inspire visitors yes. when they come see the elephants here. Exactly. Is... And our, we're hoping to even get tea from those elephant-friendly tea farms to sell no here way. at the zoo. Cool. And then support the, the farms and the people who are making active choices to say, yeah, we could... 
really farm this entire landscape. But if we leave some of this forest patch for elephants to move through, then they can. We there are elephant friendly ambassadors. We need to talk to them. We need to drink that tea. Yeah. And I can't wait. It's going to be delicious. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I'm, yes. After living in Kenya for a long time, I'm very much into tea. So that would be a lot of fun for us to find ways to support these communities, even over here while we're here in Ohio. Yes, it's definitely. exciting. I didn't even realize there was still a place where there's a population of 30,000 no, Asian elephants. Either. Amazing. Yeah. yeah. Amazing. It's really amazing and worth protecting. Right. And so definitely. that's why the zoo with Elephant Trek has really zeroed in on, on wanting to invest a lot of work there. But in addition, we have team members who are working with Asian Elephant Safe, the AZA program that's working um, on their disease threats that they are facing the species throughout the landscape of their whole range in 13 different countries and different things. We want to, as a zoo, make sure we're protecting the species in multiple different ways. Yeah. But I'm thrilled that I get the opportunity to connect with these partners on the ground. But it's not just me. It's just that I'm the person on that Zoom call or in, on, in the email <laughs> to get us started. But then find ways where we can have more uh, Zoom calls, right? Let's use techno technology to our favor and then be able to invite people to join the conversation or order some of that tea or find, ask them other ways that we could maybe support their efforts and remind them that there are people cheering from around the world, asking them and encouraging the, the community for allowing the elephants to have space to walk around. Definitely. I love that you brought up the impact it also has on the Indian, a.k.a. greater one-horned rhino, mm -hmm. because a lot of people don't realize, you know, obviously elephants are majestic and beautiful and we want to protect them, mm -hmm. but when we protect the elephant habitat, it trickles right down. They're an umbrella species. It protects everything else mm -hmm. in the area, so exactly. this land is so important to mm -hmm. conserve. Yeah. Exactly. There's going to be tigers there, too, mm -hmm. another very endangered species that we all want to protect, um, and so many others that... It's an important landscape, and so when we when we select a wide-ranging, big animal as our umbrella species, as the one that we're fixating on, we're in the hopes of tr making sure that the, the landscape can thrive for even the exceptional birds that are yes, there, and the variety of small mammals, and reptiles, and everything. And Insects, don't forget the toads. The toads. <laughs> are toads your favorite? They jumped into your campsites. So I want oh, to make sure they're protected yes, as well. Obviously. Yeah. And cobras too. Cobras too. <laughs> this is a, a, a little side note. Do you speak other languages, or is that ever an issue, you know, trying to communicate with people all over the world? How do you figure that out? Well, um, I'm lucky that a lot of people speak English, yeah. and we're very privileged to be uh, speaking the language that most people have to learn to interact with. I us. always so. say that you can go on a flight, you know, across the world to Africa, mm -hmm. and the flight attendants will speak English. You know, yeah. we're so lucky. <laughs> it, we are so lucky, and something we might take for granted. So yeah. that's something to keep in mind. But I also, when I was living in Kenya, had had to learn some language to be able to to get by. Thankfully, I had co-worker Maasai people who spoke English and friend, very friendly and uh, guides who translated things for me and also taught me words along the way. Okay. So I learned some Swahili okay. and I tried to get better at that while at the University of Florida. Um, I was able to pay for my master's degree through a, a grant called the Foreign Language Area Studies Fellowship. Oh. Just saying that because it's really cool. The yeah. Department of Education will pay for your grad school as long as you take a language class at the same time. So what? I took my master's project classes in wildlife ecology, but also in Swahili. So Perfect. Um, just saying that, everybody check it out if you're yeah. wondering, how do I go to grad school? The Foreign Language Area Studies program is pretty cool. I had to take Swahili. It was fun. And helpful in your career. Exactly. <laughs> like, it was a w very major win-win, and they helped pay for some of my grad school. Amazing. Yes. Um, and so I do speak some Swahili. It's very rusty. It's been a few years. Um, and in terms of Ma, the Maasai language... I mostly can make Maasai people laugh, right? <laughs> <laughs> because I can say more detailed greetings or some numbers and some animals and, and um, surprise them. And so that, that, that's probably as far as I can go. It's a challenging, challenging one. But yeah. it's also a lot of fun to, to attempt to do the formal greetings and show respect yeah. in the way that they I observe how they interact. Because the 
point is, I believe, when trying to build relationships is to meet people where they are and to offer a, a greeting and a sign of respect to someone new uh, as a way to really reach out. Was It was a way that I attempted and continue <laughs> to try to maintain those relationships. And really, I would say some people in Kenya are still some of my best friends in the world, and I miss them a lot. Uh, yeah. And so... You have to try the language. That also means you have to try the food. I'm a yeah. vegetarian, but I ate a lot of goat. <laughs> when I you're willing, yeah, you're willing to really go all in. You, you've got to. Because yep. the one time, one week, I said, you know what? I'm just really not hungry, guys. I if, So what, let's set the stage. So once a week in this village, uh, right outside the research camp where I was living on Wednesday, was market day. So you'd go into town drive or walk down to town and and town was some different sheds and storefronts and different things and you could buy a cabbage or some tomatoes or a goat and various things and it was my job to go take the team down there and get a goat and come back thankfully I didn't have to do any of the butchering or the slaughtering or the cooking of the goat but then we would have a party and eat, eat the goat one time I said you know what I'm just really not hungry thanks guys I'm gonna go I just I'm fine it led to two weeks of, are you okay? Are you mad at us? <laughs> what have we done wrong? Do you need to go to the doctor? All these things. Because to them, the eating of the meat is obviously very natural, but also um, is an important way to have everybody come together. Mm. And it, that is an important thing to do. And so I, of course, was willing to do that. I think roasted goat meat is not very tasty, if you ask me, <laughs> <laughs> being that that's not my preference. But that's not what it's about. It's mm. about sitting together and enjoying time together and being willing to laugh and make friends. Or, and that's how I probably picked up, a, um, helped me pick up more Swahili and, and a little bit of Ma to make people laugh because um, just sitting around with the team and getting to know them and enjoying dinner sure. and just being willing enough to just say yes and try stuff. It's fun. That's awesome. It is. I love it. <laughs> It'd be hard for me to go pick out the goat. I totally respect <laughs> No, they picked do. the goat out. Okay. I just had to be part of the, the group and make sure it happened so that everybody got fed. And yeah. Yeah. It was, it was fun. I once hosted Thanksgiving, and then, but obviously we couldn't get a turkey. So then they roasted a whole goat, but then I had to make all the sides and different okay. things all on a fire. It was, it was a, wow. it was a very large fire and it was a big effort all day cooking. That'd but. be brutal. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but you can say you've cooked a Thanksgiving meal in Africa. I mean, pretty, pretty awesome. <laughs> it was fun. Definitely a That's very awesome. memorable day. You made it work. You That's made awesome. it happen. <laughs> so you did mention you're still kind of adjusting into this new role. Mm -hmm. Is there like a, a favorite aspect of the job that you have so far that you've really been enjoying? I know obviously clearly you're a people person. You really enjoy building those relationships. Exactly. Yeah. yeah. I have just really loved getting to know all the teams here and um, building friendships in, in a deeper way. Obviously I've spent a lot of time at this zoo. It, it feels like home to me. Um, but now I get to work here. And I, first of all, I pinch myself every day. Wait, I'm going to work and it's, it's <laughs> at the Cincinnati Zoo. I think we all do that. Exactly. We all pretty well. Lucky, then yeah. that's how you know you work at the right place if you if we all feel lucky um but i've been really enjoying getting to know all the different projects people are working on and finding out way, where people are, are really exceptional and where they're leading on really cool efforts or where they're already super involved in different projects and then asking how can i help or what what do you need and um, getting to know people has been really, really fun. And also just wandering around my favorite place is my favorite place in the world. And I get to wander around here as part of my job. And, you know, if you get stressed or if you're stuck in too many meetings, you just get up and go walk around Rue Valley. I mean, right? Can't, it, yeah, I we, always we say, can't like, beat it. No matter, like, what job you have here, whether it's an animal keeper or an accountant or a, mm -hmm. you know, whatever, you can get up and walk around and go see an animal, which is so different. I always say accountant because my mom's an accountant. Like, she's always talking about how she's stuck in a room with no windows and, you know, has this really, really stressful job. But here... You can be anything but still work at the zoo, basically. You know, exactly. we need everyone in different types of jobs yes. here. You can, it, Yeah, there's yeah. all sorts of roles here. Yeah. And that's, that's what I'm trying to 
really emphasize too that every person that works here, they can, everyone is an essential part of conservation. Because if we think about these small organizations around the world that are doing conservation, a lot of the times they are led by a biologist who eventually started an organization because they saw a need or it was in a new community or country. They don't know anything about accounting. Right. They might need to call your mom. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> or they might need to call our accountants yes. and ask, like, can you give me some advice? Because right. I'm a biologist. Yeah. And so how we can connect those dots. And so that it's not about me having the relationship with these partners, but for me to ask our partners in India or Kenya or all over the world, what do you need? And then say, okay, we'll get you on a call with our accountants yeah, and our go. HR people because you've never run managed a team before. Let's talk. And we can also then get our team more directly connected to the conservation projects, the teams that are helping to save the species in the wild and really help everybody feel more interconnected. It's going to be fun. Yes. I love it. That's what it's all about. I love it. I know we we hesitate with the word favorite, but I'm all about favorites. Do you have a favorite animal? My gut says lions, but <laughs> is that true? Uh, I'll say yes. Okay. But uh, obviously we I want to say I love all animals. <laughs> yeah. And, you know, I have too many favorites. <laughs> There's too many say. favorites, but my gut reaction answer to that question is usually lions. Okay. But a lioness. Oh, uh, perfect. Yes, to okay. be a little more explicit. Okay. Specific, as in a um, badass pride leader, uh-huh. rather than the maybe lazier dudes, you know. <laughs> Not that I was looking we at Mark. Look at no, I, can, I can relate to that, especially at our zoo, because, you know, John is the handsome face of the zoo. He's beautiful as can be, but... My personal favorite's Imani. Mm-hmm. Imani is yeah. so special and so yeah. fun to work with. And when she's looking at you, she's really looking at oh, you. Yeah. She's <laughs> assessing. You know, John. John's taking a nap. <laughs> <laughs> and so, yeah, lion lionesses are uh, one of the one of my favorites that really stand out, and, okay. and just how amazing they are. I can't help but when I see Imani here. I'm taken back and transported. I'm st- sitting in my car in Kenya watching the wild lions hunt, and I feel really lucky to say I've, I've seen a lot of hunts. I've, I've gotten to spend hundreds of hours, maybe thousands of hours with wild lions. I'm in my car, but they're outside. I thought it was going to be the most adventurous job ever. It really <laughs> was. I've got some good stories, but I will also say I forgot the key thing that we is demonstrated probably right now mm-hmm. here at the zoo with John and Imani. Lions sleep a lot. A lot. Yeah. <laughs> so my notebook was a lot of lions sleeping. Lions right. sleeping. <laughs> and, and there's, I'm going to park right here next to this bush, and I know that there are 11 lions in that bush. I can't see a single wow. one of them, but I have to just sit here with my car off until they wake up. And sometimes it was hours. Yeah. Yeah. But, you know, bring some tea and a thermos, <laughs> bring a notebook, and um, yeah, I've, it's led to some amazing adventures and some awe-inspiring moments that changed my life. You mentioned you saw hunts. Like, was yeah. that hard for you? When I had the opportunity to go to Africa, which is the most amazing thing I've ever done, I wanted to see a hunt, but I didn't want to see a hunt. And, I, and I'm and i curious to see hear your thoughts on that. Like, was it hard the first time? Or you just is know it's it, the circle of I life? Am I brutal if I say no? No, I, I mean, want to hear your... For yeah. me, the circle of life, I, I think I'm clearly very carnivore biased. And I by the point when I was tracking them, I was getting to know the pride groups and wanting rooting for the cubs and wanting mm. them to get food. And so... When it felt like whenever they had a successful hunt, it was like they reset and they had the resources they need for it needed for a few days. Because I got to see the cycle from when they hunted and they could stretch their stomachs to per, like dis, per, diameters that doesn't look physically <laughs> possible. The elasticity of a lion's stomach is wild. 30, 40 pounds of meat going in at once. If we, what? We could not stretch your stomach like that. They all look pregnant. (laughs) And that's why they all just lie there for days afterwards with their belly up because they're that full. But then over a period of days where then they would get more and more hungry and more and more active and looking for the opportunity to grab the next meal. Um, Observing that then made me want them to be successful uh-huh. but lions are not successful every every time i don't remember the exact statistic but it's 
once every five, once every ten attempts. I know? think it's between ten and thirty yeah, percent. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, yeah. So yeah, yeah. even not less. very often. Yes. Yeah. Um, so it's really not not very often, and so I'd always get excited when they were. The coolest hunt, if I can tell you yeah. about one one of the Please hunts do. that I've Yeah, we want to hear all your stories. <laughs> Please. So imagine it's me and my Land Rover or Land Cruiser, whatever, with my thermos of tea, and there are this pride of eleven lions outside, following a lead female named Namanyak, which means hope. And we're following Namanyak and the her pride, and there's another her sister, and lots of subadult young males. They're super playful. They haven't moved off. They'd only have kind of fuzzy sideburns. They don't even have manes <laughs> yet. But it's a wild and playful group because it's so so many young um, sub-adults in the group. So I love watching them. They mostly just flop around and jump on each other, but they're very much sleeping for hours. And so I'm just sitting in my car and periodically they'll get up and walk a few feet and I get excited yeah. and turn on my car and then they all flop down again. <laughs> so it was anticlimactic and for a while. So they do that again and then Namanyak, the lead female, perks up her head and gets up and runs off to the right. And I'm, where, where is she going? Everybody else, all the other lions, are alert. Their heads are up, so I know something's going on. But I can't see anything, and I'm just sitting here in the dark. This is maybe 11 o'clock at night, midnight, that kind of thing. And so I'm just sitting watching them. I have a spotlight, but just also using kind of the moonlight to keep an eye on what, what's going on. Then I hear hooves running. Namanyak pushed a herd of zebra that were meandering close by, she ran behind them and then pushed them, scared them towards the rest of the pride. And they all wow. jumped on one zebra right in front of my car, oh my in gosh. the headlights of my car. They all just pounce on this one zebra and have dinner. I'm screaming because I'm just so excited. I've, <laughs> I've spilled my tea all over myself because I didn't even have to move my car. Right? They all just pounced right in front of my car on this huge zebra and yes that is sad for the zebra but it was a large herd of, of zebra uh, so the slowest of the group I guess was the one who got taken that night but um, it was an exceptional moment where then they went and got the little cubs there were two little cubs Aww. in that group and brought them over and so watching Aww. them climb around on top Aww. and and get, get the food that they needed it is something I'll never forget. I Oh my gosh, it sounds amazing, and yes. I'm actually shocked to hear, obviously, I'm not an expert, and I don't know wild lions, I know our lions, but I assumed that when lions hunted, they were choosing to do so, and were kind of like stalking and waiting, and do you think she was just hanging out and heard them, and was like, oh, here's an opportunity, oh, and she they went for it? they are super lazy and opportunistic. I didn't realize that. So, sometimes they would be, they would go out and... I would follow them very far at a distance uh -huh. if they were being very active and walking, like, for example, across a big grassland and vigilant. They were very fixated on a herd in the distance, so then I, I would say, use those as cues of their hunting. So I'm going to stay back, but I would keep, a, keep an eye on them, but not want to interfere. But they are exceptionally opportunistic. And so while they were all in the dark at night napping, right, she clearly heard this herd of zebras yeah. walking along, probably grazing on the grass, and took that opportunity to say, let's be strategic. I'll run behind them, make a lot of noise, or, or just be very vis visible yeah. and scare them towards the rest. And so then 10 other lions were lying in wait because they just stayed down until the zebras were there. I wonder if she Amazing. communicated to them somehow to just yeah. like... Let them know to stay there. Yeah. That's what I was going to say. Or amazing they, seeing them work together yeah, like that. Yeah. yeah. So that is what is amazing about watching lions because they're the only social big group cat. Right. So they do communicate with each other vocally with, with different noises. But also if lions have dark spots on the back of their ears. And that actually helps them communicate when they're all vigilant and hunting and look, paint, look pointed forward. From the prey's perspective, or if you're looking straight at them, you can't really see them. They're camouflaged. But from the lions behind them, they can see those dark spots on their ears so that then they can see where are they looking, where are they moving off to, so that then they can strategically go in a different direction. I've seen adult females, you know, really diverge, but then converge again together from both sides on the same animal in different ways that it 
if we tried to do it, we would fail so <laughs> yeah. hard, and we'd all be screaming at each other, and the prey would just laugh and run off, right? But the fact that they're able to coordinate to that level is amazing to yeah, watch. Yeah, and even all pick yeah. the same animal to mm-hmm. go after. Yeah, I can imagine us like playing some sort of game where they're five people running away and they're the you know quote unquote prey and then there's two of us we have to somehow pick the right one and both go for it and I, sneak up yeah. on them yeah sure we would fail yeah no that's not our skill set <laughs> as a species <laughs> everybody has a, a skill <laughs> so not to put you on the spot but does are there any other stories that just stand out that you could share with us mm-hmm. or if if the answer is no you can say no but I would love it one more story oh yeah what's I will, I'll share one more. Okay. Um, something I forgot to tell you is that my car liked to break down a oh, lot. No. <laughs> a lot. And um, it would overheat and because it was very hot in this landscape. And so then when I would turn it off when the lines were nearby, and then I would go to turn it back on, sometimes it just wouldn't turn on. So and you then, were by yourself? No. So I was okay. never alone. Okay. I was with the Maasai researchers that I was working with. Um, and so we were always in a group of at least three or four folks okay. and collecting data, um, chatting, telling lots of stories. It was always a lot of fun. Um, but when the car would break down, you would need to get out and push it. But if there's a pride of lions outside, <laughs> you can't do that. So there's a lot of, th- I have a lot of stories of sitting there listening and getting to know the landscape by waiting until it was safe to get out of the car and push it to try to get it to, to start. Oh and one time that same pride of lions were all snoozing around us. And so it was really dark and I think it was a new moon. So there was no moonlight and we, we were looking at the stars and the Maasai people, my teammates, were asking me stories and to explain what, how the moon and the sun move around each other. I was explaining our perspective or uh, the the science that we understand about how it all how they all move around and orbit. And they were telling stories about how when, from their perspective, the sun and the moon are always at odds and fighting with each other. And when one mm-hmm. of those is red, if there's a red moon in at night, then the sun is winning that battle oh. that day or, or vice versa. When it's a very red sun, the moon's winning. So hearing these stories was really immersive. And then all of the lions started roaring around us. Like the sounds that you can hear at the zoo, it make, it's my favorite sound mm-hmm. in the world when John and Imani are roaring because... When you're really close, it vibrates your sternum. Like your whole body, you can feel it. And it's immersive. And so I had 11 lions all roaring around me at the same time. (laughs) While I was sitting on the roof of this car watching, looking at the stars, sitting with my friends. And then the brightest shooting star I've ever seen. And it wasn't a shooting star, like a streak across the sky. It was as if a bright green line was dropping straight out of the sky. It was bright green and sparks and just so wild. And the Maasai man sitting next to me, Lasarem, said, wow, God just lit a match on the sky. And that visual and that description, it, it, yeah. it, I'll never forget it. And the lions around with us. With the lions roaring. With the yeah. lions roaring and sitting under the stars and understanding that we all have different perspectives of explaining what's going on around us. But it's a beautiful place that we get to be on this planet and that we get to interact with people and observe amazing wildlife. So I'll never forget that moment. Wow, I can't imagine. Yeah, the, that is the perfect visual. Like, I can imagine that. Yeah, you can imagine exactly what you saw. Yeah, from yeah. that explanation. Yeah. Wow. Oh my gosh. Well, we can't wait to hear more stories on another episode sometime. Yes, more story time with Lily. <laughs> yes, I can't wait. Needs but to now... be a new segment. Now. <laughs> Let's do it. Bonus episode every month. Um, now we can embarrass ourselves and see if we know any answers to Mark's yes. quiz. Fun. Yeah, we have trivia, yes. Oh my goodness. Are you competitive? I'm not very good. Okay. I mean, we'll see. We'll see. We'll see our guys. <laughs> Are you? I can be. It depends, you know. I feel like more we're going to be silly and, yeah. and get these answers wrong and then realize after we know the right answer. We'll see. Have some confidence. We'll see. Okay, we'll see okay, where it we'll goes. See. We'll see where it goes. We've got this. So being as we've got Lily Maynard with us, the director of global conservation at the zoo, I figured... Let's have a trivia about some conservation success stories. There's always Good a lot one. of negative media in the news. There's obviously tons of species facing endangered list, extinction, that kind of stuff. But let's focus on some success stories because there's plenty of them out there. Yeah, the bright spots are the bright what spots. we got to focus on. we got to keep That's what keeps us going, right? Yeah. So we're starting off trivia question number one about the California condor. Oh, Huge success story in the western U.S. In 1987... 
California Condor numbers had dropped how low? How many individuals were left in 1987? In the wild or? In the wild, yes. In are the there wild. options or we, do we have to just <laughs> it's, know it's, the it's answer? A, it's a guess. <gasps> Eleven. I was going to guess two, but that sounds really desperate. Eleven and two? Lily's closer with this one. It's 27. Okay, that makes there more were, sense. It was down to 27 individuals. At we, that we were point, even more desperate. <laughs> I'm glad that there were 27. Yes, me too. Man, we need to make sure that well, we should have acted much earlier before that yeah, number. 27, still not great, yes. But at that point, U.S. Fish and Wildlife, they decided to take, at the time, drastic measures. They captured all the birds from the wild. Mm. They placed them in breeding programs in zoos, and they had enough breeding success in zoos that they were able to re-release these animals back into the wild. Now there are about 488 in the wild. Incredible. Yeah. Wow. And the, I, we can't even really imagine how big these birds are, you know? I, I, I hope someday to be able to see one fly over. Yes. Because, they, you know, when you see one, you think, oh, that's kind of like a big vulture mm -hmm. visually. But yes. how incredible that they were able to go from 27 to now 488 in the 488 wild. And there's still many zoos very actively involved in the breeding and then um, the release of yes. offspring. Yeah, and I can't imagine after capturing them, like, the pressure that these zoos felt because, mm -hmm. you know, obviously we can't do, we can't yeah. help them breed all the time. We can't do everything for them. So mm -hmm. if that hadn't or gone if it well, didn't work, yeah. Yeah, that yeah. would have been mm -hmm. scary. So I'm, a lot of amazing. pressure. Yeah. A lot of pressure. But luckily the collaboration between fish and wildlife, the zoos, especially, I know San Diego, Los yes. Angeles, they were very involved in this effort. So yeah, a lot Barbara, of collaboration involved. Yeah. Mm -hmm. yeah. But it's been a success. Numbers are still rising. So fingers crossed. Question number two, you know, it's fun to focus on some of the larger species, but there's a lot of small species that yes. need help as well. Yes, and just as important. So I might be mispronouncing this, but the Fosquet speckled dace, a very small fish species. <laughs> it's like, what? Yeah, it's a very small fish species. <laughs> you guys can't see our only faces. Several, <laughs> only several <laughs> inches long. The Fosquet speckled dace is found in what U.S. state? It's only in one state? Only in one state. Okay, so can we can we deliberate before Please we do. answer? Yes. <laughs> it's encouraged. <laughs> so it, uh, my gut is saying if he's talking about an exceptional fish, there's endangered fish all over, but there are these cave dwelling, very endangered um, little little fish in the southwest. I'm also peeking at Mark to see if we're on the right track. He's got a good poker I'm face, to play you but I'm, my gut reaction is remembering hearing some stories about endangered fish. But this is also the comeback story. Oh, yes. Hmm. So it could be some kind of freshwater fish on a river or stream that was endangered by because of a dam or something. That would be a good story if the dam was taken. Mm. I love how she goes about these. I know. Mm. I love her. She's working mm. through what all the thinking? angles. What are you I don't know. My gut said Utah, but I have no idea why. I don't have any explanation like you do. No. <laughs> I, I mean, I'm, my guess. explanation is me trying to f fill the narrative <laughs> to then make an, an answer make sense. Um, if you're going Utah, I will go Arizona. Arizona. You're on the right half of the country. It is out west, but it's in Oregon. Okay. Tell us more. Oregon. What can you yes. tell? What tell? What not is? Quite. What, tell us about that quote. Thank you for being polite, but the right half of the U.S. is not actually close at all. We got that wrong. Can you I'll tell us? i to be nice. <laughs> can you tell us more about the speckled of fish? Of course. So this fish is only found in one freshwater spring. It's in a single spring. You were on the right track with the cave. The cave. <laughs> Keep going. So it's found in a single freshwater spring in Oregon. And this spring, it was facing um, threats due to livestock. Livestock was using the land and using the waterway that fed the spring. So obviously when livestock get involved, they were having issues with coliforms in the water, mm -hmm. fecals and everything like that. The water quality was suffering. Luckily, uh, the Bureau of Land Management was able to step in in 1987, and they protected the area, they protected the waterway that fed it, and they have actually expanded the spring, so the spring is now twice its size in 1987, 
and they just got taken off the endangered species list in 2019. See, when I hear stories like that, my head always goes to, who was paying attention to these little fish, and how did they know that was happening? Or like, do you know? Yeah. Did they see something? Did you any research? Did I do you not get to know. That point? Okay, I do not know. Something for ne- for next time, we gotta dig deeper. Yeah, dig deeper. But to me, an episode that's... on that. <laughs> It ends in dace. Speckled dace. The falsquette speckled dace. Well, what that emphasizes to me is the people who have a specific passion and want to be a deep dive expert on the very exceptional fish on the planet or in their state have a role to play. Mm -hmm. And then the other types of people who are wanting to look more across a landscape or have a a different approach. That's why we need people who are passionate about anything to be involved in the process and involved in no matter what their expertise is to be able to um, connect those dots or advocate for the speckled days. Definitely. (laughs) Love it. All right, next we're going back to Africa. We've heard a lot about Lily's adventures in Africa. We're going back there. Mountain gorilla numbers have risen, fallen, or stayed the same in the last decade? Mountain gorillas. Definitely risen. I'm so happy to hear that. And you said these were hopeful stories, so that was going to be my (laughs) answer. But if you hadn't said that, I would have guessed declined. So that's very exciting. Yeah, it's amazing. Tell us more. Yes, luckily they have risen. Only slightly, but they have in fact risen. In 2010, they estimated there were about 475, 480. Now the newest estimates are about 605 to 610. They're still on the endangered species list. They still need a lot of work. But luckily... Thanks to habitat protection, thanks to ranger units who patrol the areas, keeping poachers away and protecting the gorillas, numbers have risen. Yeah. yeah. It's definitely something worth celebrating because big charismatic animals and apes that overlap and need a lot with what people need, it's, it's a very big challenge. Yeah. Lily, did you have a chance to see gorillas while you were I haven't yet. Africa? That's definitely on my bucket list of, of hopefully in future trips. Next get, trip. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> would be grateful for that opportunity. All right. Last animal-related question. What tactic by the United States Forest Service has promoted the growth of the running buffalo clover? It's an endangered clover species, so there's a lot of protections for plants and animals as well that we're Mm -hmm. trying to cover. What tactic by the U.S. Forest Service has helped promote growth of the buffalo clover? Do they, like, give you a prize if you find a four-leaf clover? That's it. (laughs) 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 It's like people let it grow so they have a better chance of finding a four-leaf clover and then you win one. I love that. That's the most Jenna response I've ever heard. A four-leaf clover. I love it. I don't know what to think of that, that that makes it a Jenna response. (laughs) No, I love it. It's a compliment. Jenna's perpetual optimism. (laughs) I love that. It'd be fun. It would be fun. And I like that your use of incentives to get people also kind of gamify it. That's always going to help. My answer is um, the restoration of planting of of it, restoring it into the habitat and then letting, letting it grow and protecting it. So you're on the right track. The restoration was the initial response that they did to get the uh, running buffalo clover back in the habitat. But then to promote it really took off once they started using prescribed burns, mm, actually. So important. Yes. <laughs> yes. Now I see why that was a Jedi answer. <laughs> <laughs> but you know what's just right? Jedi answer in the best way. <laughs> Not a game. They they just did it. Well, you you were thinking about promoting it throughout instead of promoting it in the landscape. I love it. But our partners here at Crew, our team here at Crew, are involved in the Buffalo Clover (gasps) project. Yeah, our our exceptional plant team is is works with Fish and Wildlife on the Buffalo Clover project. So check it out if you want to learn more. Way to tie it back in. I love it. I know. I love. Love You always have uh, information after the questions. I love it that you're. Yeah, I know. Helping us make a lot. I'm of learning quiz. more from this trivia than you right. guys are. <laughs> I'm having fun. <laughs> this is awesome. All right, last question here. We're talking about conservation. It's not really related, but sort of related. True or false, the Crone Conservatory, not quite conservation, conservatory is older than Cincinnati Zoo. True or false? These are two pillars of the Cincinnati area. Yes, two pillars and probably similar or or origin and um, focus on creating a garden and the conservatory of a big greenhouse and landscape from kind of more European 
foundations. Yes. I it could be older, but I'm gonna say false. I was going to say false, but I don't know. False, you guys yeah. got it. False. The zoo's older. False, the zoo. We started it. Yeah. <laughs> the zoo was opened in 1875, as we all know. The Crone Conservatory opened in 1933. Oh, good. Oh, and it's kind of, I mean, not a huge difference, but kind of a big difference. Beautiful place, though. Anyone in yes. the area, if you've never been, strongly recommend it. Beautiful greenhouse, beautiful butterfly garden yes. as well. Yes, yeah. So important to be able to see the butterflies. It's really fun. Yeah. Lily, thanks for joining us for trivia. Yes, thank but, you for the tough questions. Yes. <laughs> and now I will ones. never forget the speckled dates. Yeah, right? <laughs> Jenna, I want to look it up. Do we have anything else for Lily today? Yes, Lily, what can I do? You do so much, but what, what can I do? What you can do or what anybody can do is really think about how can you make room for wildlife where you live. And it could be as simple as putting a flower pot on your windowsill or your doorstep. I've been a part of the team that did research where the size of the garden doesn't actually matter from the pollinator's perspective. Really? They just need food. And that means they need flowering resources. So if you can have a few different types of flowers in your garden, even in a flower pot, or in if you have a yard or if you have a patio, then you're putting food in the landscape and providing resources that will provide a foundation for wildlife. Because what starts with helping bees or butterflies will then have consequences and benefits for birds and mammals and, and reptiles and really welcoming wildlife into your home or around your home. I'm not saying open all the doors and windows and then say, it's your house now, yeah. and then you don't just live in a tent. You don't need to do that. But there's ways we can make choices every day that is doesn't mean that it's hurting wildlife. So reducing how much you put chemicals or fertilizer or um, herbicide, mm -hmm. pesticides down on the ground, really just m thinking actively about how we can be more friendly and welcoming to wildlife, I think, no matter where you live, if it's urban or rural, you're going to be able to have a positive impact. I like that because, yeah, you could have a beautiful, like, grassy lawn, but that's not going to feed any pollinators. No. So if you, that's, like, just to me, that's a desert. Right. That's a monoculture farm that per serves no purpose. Right. I don't want to live in a Versailles. That's where in the French palace <laughs> landscape was is where the initial love of grass came from oh really it is yeah we I don't need to that. yeah we don't need that we need living landscapes lots of different flower shapes will then allow for lots of different plants po pollinators to be able to have the food they need because a big swallowtail needs to flutter and float a monarch needs a big flower that it can go splat and sit on okay uh little bees want little flowers where they can climb into it they're all the different shapes and sizes of flowers then give a different bu diverse buffet yeah for different pollinators but i think the best point of what you brought up is that you can put three different types in one pot and you only need one pot to actually yeah. make a small difference exactly. or a big difference. Yeah. I mean, and it could be a big difference mm -hmm. because that could be the stepping stone between a different garden and the direction that that pollinator is trying to go. Right now we're gearing up and with the monarch migration and they are migrating all over uh, Canada. They've, they were outside of Canada now. They're further south. They're, they're, on their way here next week the yeah. pollinator festival here monarch festival but they're really on their way and we need to provide food so even if you put one flower pot outside you're providing that stopover for a snack that really will help wildlife love i love it. it that might have to be another episode for another day is your work with the monarch yeah. program yes. we didn't oh. even touch on it today but i'd love to hear yeah. more <laughs> clearly i'm lion biased you all, you all can't see that i'm looking at jenna and she's in front of this huge painting of the african savannah and kilimanjaro and so i'm on i'm on africa brain uh, yeah. That's <laughs> but okay. yes i would gladly come back and giggle with you guys and talk about monarch whatever you want. <laughs> well thank you so so much we really appreciate you being here and thank you for all that you do and we can't wait to talk again yeah thanks so much for your encouragement and for being so welcoming this is really really fun to join the team Good. definitely thanks. thanks we're definitely glad to have you at the zoo we're lucky to have you here thanks for all your work you inspire everyone else to get involved in conservation well conservation's here. complicated we need as many people yeah. involved as possible one person can't do it so please get involved join in reach out let's we can do this together we got this awesome yeah
Well, thank you all for listening at home. This has been another episode of Cincinnati Zoo Tales. Until next time, take care. See ya.